Greg Williams got the pink slip on Monday morning after making the worst defensive play call you may ever see. We dive into the decision to fire him and look ahead to the Jets matchup with their old pal Jamal Adams and the Seahawks. Kaz and I will chat with a former Jets head coach that took them to the playoffs in 2006. Playoffs? Yes, the Jets used to make those. It's Eric Mangini joining us. All that, plus Brian's book and Stump the Cause comes at you next on a bye-bye Greg edition of Gangs All Here from the New York Post. You play to win the game. Welcome back to Gangs All Here, our New York Jets podcast from the New York Post. Everybody, Jake Brown and Brian Costello coming at you once again. Follow us on Twitter at Jake Brown Radio at Brian Cos. Read Cos's stories in the Post and nypost.com. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. But if you're using Apple Podcasts, go in there, write a nice review, tell us how beautiful we are, how much you love listening to the show. Give us a five star rating as well. We appreciate your continued support. All season, we got a hell of a guest for you later in the show. It's former Jets head coach, the man genius himself, Eric Mangini. Because speaking of coaching, we called it Sunday night. We said it might happen Monday morning. And it's weird because usually we record Monday morning, but this week was a Sunday night recording. And of course, this is just how 2020 worked. We record Sunday night and the news drops Monday morning. Greg Williams gets fired. And I know you and I were not surprised after that play call Sunday that they gave him the boot on Monday morning. Yeah, Jake, not surprising. After the play call and also after hearing Marcus May speak post-game, I thought what he said was telling. Obviously, he was speaking for his teammates as a leader of the team that you know they felt like they were not put in a good position there. He kept talking about the call. And, you know, if you think about it, Jake, like these guys, these coaches have to stand up in front of the players and say, this is what you screwed up. This is what you screwed up. This is what you have to do better. You messed up that play. How could Greg Williams stand up there and do that this week when he made the biggest mistake of anybody? Greg Williams isn't the type of guy that's going to stand up there and go, I apologize. <laughs> like, I can't see him ever admitting that he that, that was the, right, the wrong call. He's going to stay if he, whenever he talks, he's going to say that was the right call and explain why he did it. So, you know, the more you thought about that, you, you just, you know, he, he could, he lost the room. He lost his defensive players. You know, we've asked, you asked that question a lot of have the coaches lost the team? Well, Greg Williams lost the team on Sunday. Obviously, they felt like they had their one chance to win a game this year. He blew it for them with that call. Greg Williams is an egomaniac. What a mic drop moment. I mean, this ending his time with the Jets, you know, potentially handing them tr- the keys to Trevor Lawrence and getting fired on the way out. Some could call him a martyr. I mean, he he died for he died for the Jets fan base, Kaz. And do you think Greg Williams gets a defensive coordinator job next season somewhere else, or is he going to be some defensive assistant or, or smaller, you know, a smaller role? I think he's probably done, Jake. I mean, Forever. 62 years old. Yeah, yeah, I think he's done. Wow. Uh, 62 years old. He's gotten a lot of chances. I've been shocked at how many chances he got after Bountygate. That could have ended his career and he's gotten a lot of jobs since then. He uh, he's a guy who comes in with a lot of bluster and it works. Uh, There's an initial burst where it works because he kind of kicks guys in the butt and they, they respond, but he wears out his welcome very quickly. Like even if this season had gone well, 
or semi well. I, I always thought Greg Williams was here for two years. Like he, if you look at his track record, he, he doesn't last much longer than two years. Think about this, Jake, the Browns job, right? When he he took over for uh, Freddie Kitchens, or no, it's Hugh Jackson. I'm sorry, Hugh Jackson got fired. He took over halfway through the season, and he did a good job there. Like they won five games, I think, under Greg Williams. They didn't offer them the job. Like they let him walk. Like that's telling, right? That Cleveland let him walk. He just rubs people the wrong way a lot. You know, I, I think he's probably done, and I don't think he would take a lesser job. I, I just he's been a defensive coordinator for a long time in this league. You know, maybe he'll consult something like that, like some kind of role like that where it's not full time and w- work with teams. You know, but uh, I think he's I think he's probably done after this. E G O. I'm curious if he has eight guys back in the secondary. You know, playing a prevent on that last play, the Jets end up winning the game. If your answer changes on that, maybe he is back next season if he doesn't make that boneheaded a call. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, well, like, look, I mean, what do you say? Are they say are they one in fifteen? I mean, no. If they won that game, that wasn't saving people's jobs on Sunday. Uh, you know, if they had been, if they they played really good defense this year, yeah, maybe I changed my mind. But I just, you know, I I just look at there's some guys who wear out their welcome. They come in and they do a good job initially, but then they wear on people. And I think Greg is that kind of guy. If you go through his resume, he hasn't lasted very long anywhere. Um, And I think that's probably why. And Frank Bush takes over as defensive coordinator. No relation to Reggie, George W, George HW, any other person with the last Homer, former Yankee, great Homer Bush. Um, No relation to any of them. And he's been coaching in the league for a while um, but cause it, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that in a couple of weeks, it's going to be a clean house. We're not going to see probably any of these coaches here next season. Probably not. There might be one or two that survive, uh, you know, position coaches or something. I, you never know. Um, there's usually, usually there's one or two that survive and you don't know what their con the contract situations are. Sometimes, sometimes they keep them ar- around. Um, so we'll see what happens, but yeah, they now have a Bush and a Gore, Jake, which I, which I find interesting. How about on that? The Jets. Uh, yeah, might, yeah. We might have to demand a recount at some point of this Jets season. <laughs> the the uh, Jets, yeah, the Jets would like a recount of the season. I'm sure of that. Yeah, we will but, recount the season. We will not stop the count of the season, though, guys. <laughs> I don't, you know, Frank Bush will come in. I, he can't have much impact in four games. He's just kind of there to uh, manage things and, and keep them rolling here. And, you know, I know he's a respected guy by the players, and he's been around a long time. He's a coordinator in Houston. So, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll do a, a fine job here in the last four games. But it's just so 2020, cause We talked about, you know, potentially Greg Williams. You know, he he can't be the guy to replace, you know, in the interim basis, Adam Gase. And then here it is. Adam Gase fires Greg Williams. I mean, what a bizarre world we're in that the guy, you know, Jets fans and everyone's like, how is he still coaching? Mark Canizero did a column about just fire Adam Gase already. And Greg Williams is gone. And it, at this rate, it looks like Adam Gase is probably going to just ride out these last four games at this point. Yeah, I don't think there's a point to firing him now, Jake. And I know some people say, well, I'll get jump on the coaching search, but you can't even do much right now. The NFL put out a thing. You can only do virtual interviews until the end of the season. And that's with guys who are not employed by teams. So you're talking college coaches and the college season is so weird. It's it's going later this year than I think it usually does. So I, I don't know how that's going to affect things. Um, and also for guys who aren't employed right now, you could interview like a Bill O'Brien or something like that. But uh, the sense I get, you know, even with the the teams that have openings right now, uh, the Falcons, the Lions, and the Texans, they're more doing their GM stuff right now. The co- I, I haven't seen anything really about coaching searches getting started. So I think they let Gase ride it out. And I, I think the fact that they didn't want to turn this over to Greg Williams had a lot to do with why Adam Gase is still here, especially after what, he, what Williams said 
in October where he kind of threw Gase under the bus and the offense under the bus. That that did not sit well with anyone inside the Jets. So, you know, now uh, Gase, Gase lasted longer. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for him, though, Jake. He, he has to sit through these last four games. It almost feels like it'd be a mercy firing at this point. Yeah, if I'm him, you know, get get, a, get to a tropical island, take your paycheck. Because what, what does he get? He's got two more years he's going to get paid, right? He had a four-year deal. Yeah, he'll get, he'll get paid for two more years. So that, that's not a problem. Getting fired as a head coach is not the worst thing in the world because you get paid out your full contract without having to work a lot of times, which to me is like, you know, it's kind of like a backup quarterback when they get paid big. They're almost never going to play, but they're getting these nice deals. I mean, firing a head coach, you know, mid-contract and backup quarterbacks, not a bad life. Yeah, but these guys are proud guys, Jake. They've reached the NFL for a reason because they're ultra competitive. Like these people are more competitive than you could ever imagine. So they don't ever want to get fired. And, I, you know, I think uh, for Adam Gase, I know he doesn't want this on his record. You know, 0-16, he's, he, you know, you talk about Greg Williams. I don't know where Adam Gase goes from here. I don't know if he ever gets a job again. You know, as, I'm not talking head coaching. That, that's not happening for sure. But does he get a, like, is he a wide receivers coach somewhere in the future? I'm not sure. You know, 0-16 does some damage. Rod Marinelli's still coaching. He was coaching. In the Raiders, he was the coach of that Lions team that won 0 16. Hugh Jackson is not, you know, he, he coached a little bit for Cincinnati. I think he consulted for them, but he hasn't, he's not in the league now after he went 0 16 with the Browns. So it's, um, you know, that's not something anyone wants on their resume. Guys, we had Nate Robinson versus Logan Paul in the ring. If, if they're both fired soon, you know, if Gase gets fired soon, give me Greg Williams and Adam Gase in the boxing ring. Celebrity Jets co- coaching death match. If you remember Celebrity Death Match on MTV. Yeah, you you know one thing, Jake. Like the, all the conspiracy theories that are out there on Twitter and stuff, like it's like all he blew it on purpose. People are saying, yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous to me. Like I'm not saying Adam Gase and Greg Williams were the best of friends, but they also those guys didn't hate each other. Like they they, they you know it wasn't like that, and it wasn't. And so and Greg Williams' son is on the Jets coaching staff. So you think he's doing that to his son? You think he's doing that to the players that, you know, he cares about that have played for him? Like he didn't do that to, to sabotage anyone. He did that because, you know, he, his ego, he likes to be aggressive and he just let it, let it get away from him at the wrong moment. So, you know, the conspiracy theories and then people, even after he got fired, I was still getting emails. Well, he did it because the Jets told him to because of Trevor Lawrence. Like it's preposterous. Like, no, no, they didn't. <laughs> they, they did not. If, if the Jets are going to tank, right? The way teams tank is their personnel. So like if all of a sudden James Morgan is the starting quarterback this week, they're tanking. Like then you can say they're tanking. If all of a sudden Quinton Williams is shut down for the season, then you can say, well, that, that's kind of suspicious. Maybe they're tanking. This, you know, it's not a play call at the end of a game. That's not how you, that's not how you tank. You gotta call a better play. Well, cause they, they shipped one egomaniac out of town. Greg Williams is an egomaniac. And they shipped another one. Uh, before the season that they're going to face on Sunday. And that's Jamal Adams when the Jets go to Seattle, where they are right now 13-point underdogs against the Seattle Seahawks. And listen, Jamal Adams, you know, he's always been about him, him, and him. And he's not having the greatest year in Seattle. He's played eight games. He's already missed four. He's got zero picks, one forced fumble. He's been a sack machine, seven and a half sacks, um, 41 solo tackles, 58 combined. So he's having... A solid year. He's not having this all pro year. You wrote about it. You said, you know, they miss the player, but they don't miss Jamal Adams himself. Yeah, he's a, he's a fantastic player, Jake. I don't ever want anyone to think when I criticize Jamal Adams, I'm ever criticizing the player because he's a very good player. And, you know, his numbers are down this year, but he, he had a groin injury that caused him to miss four games. He then had a shoulder injury that slowed him down. So, you know, he's been playing hurt this year. He's played a much better lately. And, 
I, I think he played pretty well against the Giants. I didn't see that game, but I, I heard from some people that he played well there. He's going to play better when he, as, as he gets healthier and as he gets used to that defense. Yeah, he he just wore out, you know, talk about guys wearing out their welcome. Jamal just wore on people here, and it was always about Jamal. And, you know, he kind of pushed himself as this team leader, but in reality, that wasn't happening behind the scenes. I've named several incidents in my column of him just kind of making it all about him, uh, including the trade deadline last year and where he said he'd love to be on the Cowboys. And I just remember the reaction in the locker room when he said that. And it was pretty well known around the Jets that Jamal was the one pushing for that trade. Like he, Jamal made it out like he was shocked that they were shopping him and all this stuff. Jamal was calling people in Dallas, like players, and trying to get the message to Jerry Jones that he wanted to be there and trying to get that trade to happen. And he was how pissed happy that the trade How happy do you think, Kaz, do you think that he, went, that he went to Seattle instead of Dallas, who right now after Tuesday night's loss is 3-9? and nine. Well, look, he's from Dallas, Jake, so that's his hometown. So that's why he was fixated on the Cowboys. But yeah, like he, you know, he gave his list of teams, remember, when he demanded a trade and Seattle was on there. And because he, and look, there's, there is something to the whole Jabal wants to win aspect of this. Like I know he did an interview a few weeks ago, a podcast where he said he was depressed here. Like I do believe the losing war on Jamal. The problem was Jamal thought it was, he was the only one that the losing war on. He thought he was the only one who cared. He thought he was the only one who played hard. Remember his big dog speech at the end of the 2018 season. He said that in a locker room full of guys who had just played a game. And he was basically saying they weren't any good, that they needed better players. And like, if he wanted to go say that to Mike McCagnan at that time, go for it. Like you're a team, you know, you're, you're one of the guys that that's one of the best players. You're the best player on the team. Go ahead, go say that to Mike McCagnan. Don't say that to the media. Like that just, he was just killing his teammates when he said that. So, you know, I, I, I do think Jamal is probably enjoying a winning football team. Uh, I'm curious what happens if the Seahawks sign him after the season, they can push it to 2022 and we'll see if Jamal's happy then if, if he doesn't get his contract. Of course he won't be because he's always been about him and, you know, he, he came here and, you know, of course it's depressing losing. We're Jets fans. We've been depressed our whole lives. You're going to be depressed one or two years. Get the hell out of here. So I'm glad they got first-round picks for him. And listen, this team needs a total rebuild, and it's not going to be built around one single safety. Um, so, you know, we'll see if Marcus May is that guy. You know, we talked the other day with Fitz about, you know, who they could go after. Maybe they spend some money on a safety, but probably not. There's just too many other holes to fill. Um, so they go up against Jamal, and the Seahawks guys are coming off a loss to the Giants that pretty much shocked the world with just how bad the Seahawks offense looked. We knew the Giants defense was good, but they absolutely shut down Russell Wilson. But guess what? Russ is going to cook on Sunday, and I, I see him torching uh, this Jets defense. I, I, it's a 13-point spread. I think it's going to be something like a 34-13 Seahawks, guys. Higher, Jake. <laughs> 41 I was, yeah i think it's gonna be uh i think this is gonna be ugly and you know i've been wondering probably since the new england game of how much more this jets team can take and like when they just kind of roll over you know because i've been amazed that they played like they have these last few weeks that they, they these games have been close because it's hard when you're not getting rewarded with wins this is going to be i don't know 44 to 7 something like that this is this is going to be an ugly one jake and what's the situation here with denzel mims and the covid protocol and him leaving a uh, floor and park yeah today? yeah i mean he had to leave for a family emergency he had to go back to texas so you have to be tested every day so the question was you know could he get back wednesday night to get tested um as we're we're recording this wednesday evening we're not going to know the answer to that but if he can't then he can't play Sunday. Then he's out of the COVID testing protocol, um, and he's going to miss this game. So it'll be another excuse for Sam Darnold if, if he's not. Oh, he didn't have all three of his receivers. Um, so, you know, Darnold, you know, there's not much to watch for from him. He's not going to be the Jets quarterback. 
But, you know, you'd like to see him play well. But, yeah, this is going to be a bloodbath. And the real game the Jets fans will be watching is Jaguars-Titans. Titans coming off a loss. You know, Mike Lennon's kept the Jaguars competitive, Kaz, but uh, I don't know if the, the, an angry Titans team is going to lose to them. So it might it might be another week where the Jets hang by a thread onto that lead um, with three games left. Doctor! And Kaz, with Eric Mangini joining us later in the show, let's dive into Brian's book and give us a story looking back on that 2008 season with Eric Mangini. Yeah, so Jake, I, I covered the end of that season because our beat writer at the time, Mark Canizero, uh, he had to leave for personal reasons at the end of that season. So I covered, I took over, if you remember the Thursday night game, Brett Favre versus Matt Castle in Foxborough that went into overtime, epic game that the Jets won, their last regular season victory in Foxborough, I believe. And then they beat the Titans a week later, a 10-0 Titans team, and it looked like they were heading to the Super Bowl, and then everything collapsed. Brett Favre got hurt and it collapsed. And I was pretty tough on Mangini because I was I was young. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a relationship with him. I just kind of came onto the beat and I kind of blamed him for a lot of the things that were going wrong with the team. I got to know Eric a lot better actually after he was the coach of the Jets, talking to him. And, you know, I, I learned some things about Eric. You know, he's a very funny guy, as you'll hear on, uh, on our interview. So I was tough on Eric. And I actually, so they went into the last game of the season against the Dolphins. And I think if, if I remember right, if things broke for them, like they needed like three or four things to happen. They could make the playoffs if they won that game. And then a bunch of other things happened. They could make it. They ended up losing to the Dolphins. But Chad Pennington was the Dolphins quarterback. And they had gotten rid of Chad in the summer. To when they got Brett Favre. So I wrote a column, might have even been like Christmas Day, right before that. And I wrote, if you want Mangini gone, cheer for Chad. And I had this whole thing about like, get Jets fans, get your Chad Pennington jerseys on and go to the stadium and, and cheer for the Dolphins. Like, because Mangini's not going to get fired if they win. And... <laughs> I mean, it was tough. Like it was, it was a pretty harsh column, and I got a lot of pushback from people inside the Jets that it was wrong and I shouldn't have done that. And then they lost, they lost the game to Pennington, and it was a raw locker room after the game. And I went in, and um, Sean Ellis, who you know is slightly bigger than me, Jake, just a little bit, he just starts screaming, "Go to the other locker room. Go kiss your boyfriend, Chad. Go to the other locker room." Like screaming, like get out of our locker room. And someone had like someone from the Jets grabbed him and stopped him. But it was, you know, it was interesting. And um, I feel bad a little bit about how I treated Mangini. Sometimes you look back at these things, Jake, and when you're in the moment, you can be harsh on guys, and then you realize later, like, you know, nine and he got fired after nine and seven, Jake, and he made the playoffs two years before. And like, so like Rex comes in, and Rex, you know, Rex did a good job, and Rex brought some guys here. But it was he kind of walked into a pretty good thing here where Nick Mangold was here and Brickershaw Ferguson was here and Darrell Revis was here and David Harris was here. Those were all Mangini picks. And Damian Woody and Brandon Moore and Alan Fanica, those were guys, you know, Mangini, some he brought to the team and some he kind of put together. And so, like, looking back at it and where the Jets have been since Mangini, other than those two years with Rex, I think Jets fans would sign up right now for Eric Mangini's 9-7 and 7 2008 season. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you gladly take the Mangini-Rex days at this point. Since then, it's just been an abomination. Great story. I mean, I can only imagine Sean Ellis just chirping at you to go to the boyfriend's locker yeah. room. That's that's incredible. Uh, and he is a large man. Uh, you mentioned the Dolphins and Chad Pennington. So now let's bring in our resident Dolphins fan, Alex. What was Camerata. Alex? What was Alex? 12 when that game happened? Uh, yeah, right, right around there, yep. Oh, my God. You guys, you guys I was actually in attendance, Cause I was there at the you game. You were there. 
Well, the, and the other the the other very interesting aspect of that game is DeBrickashaw Ferguson, right? The Jets lost tackle. He missed one snap in his entire career, and it was in it was the last play of that game because Mangini ran a trick play. So it was Nick Mangold. And then it was all receivers and tight ends and running backs on the field because he was going to do, you know, the Stanford band play. And that was the only play that Rickershaw Ferguson missed in his entire career. That's incredible. It's also incredible you know that, but also incredible that that's the only play that he missed. Um, well, especially like Mekhi Becton, I think we all agree, having a good rookie season, he's played well. He's been hurt, you know, a few times already as a rookie. To Rickershaw, he never was on the injury report. It's one of the most staggering things i've ever seen at covering sports that he, he never got hurt it's it's like uh blue rush guest jeff fiegels never missed a game in his life but that's a punter a lot different a than punter. the guy who's getting <laughs> abused uh, by a defensive lineman um alex camarada come on in you know no new york titans related stumped the causes this week you stumped him back to back weeks but one of them was titans related so Be let's, nice this week, alex. Yeah, let's nice. see what you got yeah, guys, I felt so bad about last week with the Titans and Kaz getting all bent out of shape that I had to kind of give him a softball this week. And uh, you ready for this one, Kaz? If you don't get this one, I don't know. We might have to revoke the uh, the press pass. What do you think? Yes. Okay. We have to scrap the segment altogether. In, in uh, Eric Mangini's first season as head coach in 2006, he obviously led Gang Green to the wild card playoff round. So who are the other two head coaches in Jets, not Titans franchise history, to reach the playoffs in their first season as head coach? Uh, Rex Ryan and Herm Edwards. There you go. See, I told oh, you. That's almost yeah, too that easy. was an easy one. That was too easy. Goddamn. <laughs> it's actually interesting, though, while I was looking this up, that all three were in succession of one another. And there you go. The, the last three. I probably yeah. would have Bulls And Todd Bowles went 10 and 6 and almost made the playoffs. Yeah. They just, just missed. Like, you know, yeah. There you go. And in the theme of Eric Mangini, he'll join us next right here on Gangs All Here. Joining Gangs All here next is the former Jets head coach for three seasons from 2006 through 2008, where he was the AFC Coach of the Year in 2006. He would also go on to be the head coach for the Browns. He's coached 20 years in the NFL with the aforementioned Jets, Browns, 49ers, Ravens, and the Patriots, where he won three Super Bowls alongside Bill Belichick, who originally brought him in in Cleveland after being a ball boy at 23 years old. You can now catch him as an analyst on FS1. Put your hands together for Wesleyan University single season and career sacks leader and two-time Q Colts Australia regional champion, the pride of Hartford, Connecticut. It's the man genius, Eric Mangini. Welcome to the show, Eric. How are you? I, I'm great. I'm, I'm even better after that introduction. I, I want you to can, can you come hang out with me and just whenever I go to parties, just kind of lay the groundwork? You're fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll carry a megaphone around with me wherever you go and intro you. I'll you know charge $50 an intro uh, or at least a steak dinner or something out of it. I got to get it. Uh, you I mean, we talk about man genius. How cool was it to be a man genius on an iconic show like The Sopranos? That, that was a, a great experience. I, I loved the show. My wife and I used to watch it all, all the time. And then uh, I was on a, a bus. We were, I forget where we were coming back from, but I get a call. And, and the person on the other line asked me if I wanted to be on The Sopranos. And I thought it was someone, you know, just give me a hard time. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. And they said, no, no, seriously, we, we would like you to be on the show. And uh, I said, yeah, of course I would. And, and then being able to go and spend the day and, and see the way that they film and spend some time with James Gandolfini and be part of that, that whole 
that that whole experience was amazing really amazing yeah that was uh, i i watched that episode recently i rewatched the sopranos and it's amazing eric because that show is going to live forever like that's that's an iconic show that that you're a part of so that's so cool i think eric that that bruce spate should have given that introduction to you before your press conferences back with the jets <laughs> yeah, that, that might have lightened up the room a little bit I, you know i think he could have given that introduction but nobody would have, would have believed it or appreciated it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And and then it would have been such a, it would have been such a letdown when I actually came to the podium and you know didn't give very much information out. Eric Eric was the master Jacob. He would come in and he would he have like a soliloquy planned about like goal line offense that they practiced that day, and he he would filibuster he would filibuster for a little while to to avoid the questions. It was like a like a four minute four minute offense. I had, I had to run out the clock. <laughs> Yeah, Kaz always tells me he was like, you know, you're the stern guy you're coaching, and now you 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 talk, you speak a lot more. It's like a different world now and then. You got to understand. I went from New England, where as this was before coordinator spoke to the media, so I was a defensive coordinator. I had one press conference in the middle of August. It was about three people in the press conference, and two of them I think were sleeping. So that was my my whole experience prior to walking into an auditorium in New York with. You know, 50 cameras and, and just they, there, there was, there's no preparation for, for being a head coach. Like, the, and, and there's, there's not a ton of preparation for, for being in the, the New York market. Yeah. I was going to ask that, Eric. Adam Gates is still the head coach, but it looks like there could be a change after this season. Obviously, the way the season has gone, you know, if they make a change, you know, what would your advice be to anyone who's, who's coming here as a head coach in the future? Uh, that's a that's that's a great question. I I, I don't think um I, I thought I thought the overall the media was was fair. I I know that the approach that I took and and the approach that that guys from my family tree take isn't isn't popular. But I I understood that part going into it. I tried to to give what I could give without compromising what I thought was a competitive advantage. So I, I, I would say the, the biggest lesson that I learned, especially if it's a new head coach, is do all the things that you believe that you should do, but, but be as authentic as you can. I had two very strong football fathers in Belichick and Parcells, and, and I emulated them, and I felt strongly about who was I not to emulate them because they had had so much success. And I could have done all those things that, that they did, but just make sure you I had done it with my personality, much more without, within my personality. Right, yeah, because I'll say this, like Jake and, and Eric, as, as a beat writer, like I I only covered Eric at the at the end uh, when Mark Canizero missed some time. I was around around Eric a lot then, and I was a backup in that time. But I covered Rex and then Todd Bowles and then Adam Gase. And it, it's frustrating when you know the guy has a different personality than what the public thinks. And I felt that with Eric. I felt that with Todd, and I feel it with Adam. I didn't feel it with Rex. Rex Rex was who he was. But like it, <laughs> you know, and like you almost like because you almost want to say like, no, that guy's not who you think he is. Like he he's funny. Like Eric is funny. Like Todd was funny. Adam's funny. Like and they and they tend not to show it in press conference situations. And it was like always kind of like like you know show a little bit more of your personality. I felt like. Yeah, it's it's a it's a delicate balance that you you try to strike because you know everybody's going to be frustrated because you're not going to tell them who the starting quarterback is or what the specific injury is, and so that you're, you're you're dealing with that that natural reaction of, of frustration, and you're trying to be as as polite as you can because the questions are going to keep coming. So it's it's 
it's a yeah, it's a hard it's a hard balance to strike, and it's it's especially hard as a first time guy with with very little media experience. Eric, can you take us through that first year? I mean, we want to go back. You know, we so much negativity with the show because the Jets stink right now. But you know, your first year, you guys are ten and six. You make the playoffs. I'm there. I went to Foxborough. The only time I've been to Foxborough, probably the reason I didn't go back, was we got treat, treated brutally by the fans, security, and me and my dad and my jet skier. I was 15 years old, 2006, or uh, that season, and, like, even the security on a horse, we went the wrong way. They're like, go the other freaking way, and, like, I was like, wow. I was like, god damn, you hate the Jets fans that much? Um, and I remember you guys were in that game to the fourth, kept it close, but obviously lost the Patriots, or almighty Patriots then, but that year you guys are winning. What's it like being a, a winning head coach in new york you must be going to the bagel shop you're getting high fives in the bagel the guy cutting your pastrami is giving you a high five can you take us through the life of a coach when they're winning in new york yeah it was it was funny because when i first got the job i remember i was i was in my jet gear and i was i was back at the hotel in in long island i was going up the elevator and the guy gets on the elevator with me and goes hey you you a big jets fan and i said <laughs> yeah i am i said i am he said what do you think of that new head coach and I said, I, I really like him. I think he's going to do a great job. And he's like, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and, and so I wasn't really well known. There's another time there's a, my wife and I were out with uh, my my son. This is really early. It was, no, actually, it was on draft time. And the bar was setting up for a draft party. Um, and maybe it was, I forget the exact time. But we asked to, to come in. And they said, no, you, you can't come in. Only people who have, you know, had pre-registered can come in. And we're like, oh, okay, <laughs> we'll see you later. So, so there's that element of, of being completely unknown. And then when we had the success that we did, it, it was, uh, it was, it was great. It was, it was great. And for a little while, and then, um, then it can be a little bit overwhelming as well. I had a young family and in a neighborhood and, and everybody was, was very nice. But, you know, when you lose a game that, that can change pretty dramatically. I remember someone driving by the house and, and yelling stuff at, at me when I happened to be in the driveway in the off season. <laughs> You know, the following year, I, I had done an episode of Sesame Street, and it was on a it was on a Tuesday after a game. This was um, the second year; it might have been the second. I forget which year it was. But this guy, truck driver, is driving down the street, and I'm walking with Jake, my my youngest or my oldest, and we're walking into to where they film Sesame Street. And the guy yells, "Hey, man, Genie, thanks for that pile of shit you put out on the field." <laughs> and, and my son. My son's like, Dad, why is that man yelling at you? And I said, Oh, you know, you know, he's just he's just frustrated with some things. Don't worry about it. Don't don't worry about it. So you, you get the you know the, the, there's there's a great side to it, and and New York's such an amazing place to to live, uh, especially in in that context. But then there's there's that flip side that comes with it with it too. So it, it ebbs and flows. <laughs> Well, one one guy who's not beloved, in, well, he is actually beloved by some Jets fans right now is Greg Williams because they wanted to, they want the Jets to lose right now, Eric, because they're dreaming of Trevor Lawrence. But I was curious as a guy who called a lot of defenses, what you thought of the the cover zero call in that situation up by four with 13 seconds left on Sunday. Well, it's it's interesting because I've had that debate as defensive coaches. You you often have that debate. We I've seen people in the past, and it might have been. Greg in the past running a cover zero in, in that situation, and the thought process is you're not going to let the quarterback 
sit back, have all day, chuck the ball in the air, um, and, and make it a jump ball type situation. Um, and, and to some degree, I bet you Buffalo wished they, they didn't allow that to happen against the Cardinals. But the flip side of it is it's not just it's a blitz of hit. You have what happens, you know, with, with Las Vegas, but it's also they could throw a slant, a quick route, and if the corner falls down or you, you miss a tackle, you can lose too. So there's, there's big risk and, and, and there's big reward. That being said, who doesn't know that, that Greg likes the pressure? And was anybody surprised that, that he likes the he likes the pressure, especially in critical situations? The head coach can always trump the call if he wants to trump the call. I don't think that's the dynamic that that's set up there. It's not a. I don't think anybody should be surprised that that Greg pressures in critical situations. Here's here's my one counter to that, Eric. And and I've only watched I've watched Greg clo- up close for two years, but obviously I've seen Greg through the years. His personnel that he has right now has not enabled him to pressure like he did in the past. On the field at that moment, they had three rookie cornerbacks. Two of them were undrafted rookies. They had a third string safety in the game, and they don't have they don't have a very good pass rush to begin with. So, like if you watch like Eric, Greg this year, he's called more zone defense than he's probably ever called in his life because he's been afraid of those cornerbacks and then all of a sudden in that moment he's like all right let's roll the dice with these guys like this guy Lamar Jackson who's a you know 22 year old undrafted kid from Nebraska like to put him on an island against Henry Ruggs it just boggled my mind and I I know what you're saying it it does speak to who Greg is but there's also no there's no way that you thought or you would think if you run a max pressure a guy's going to be able to run a double move I mean that 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 shouldn't happen from a from a cornerback or a defensive back perspective if you're bringing the house the ball should have to come quick. Now, the fact that they didn't get there quick and he was able to run a double move, I understand exactly why the corner bit on the first move because he shouldn't be able to hold it. Now, you could look at it the other way and say, you've got this inexperienced secondary. Do you trust them to go back and play a jump ball situation and not get a pass interference? You saw again with the Buffalo game, that was three pretty experienced defensive backs who had the ball, you know, who got jumped over. So his thought process could have been, yeah, I got these young guys. My best chance to make something happen here and win this game is pressure. If I let them, you know, sit back and throw it deep, what are the odds of them playing a jump ball situation right? Right. I guess I would ask this as a coach. As a coach, Eric, do you ever do you ever think, like, I don't want to be the one that loses the game? Like, I think if he had called his own, if he had called, like, a prevent there, and they do throw a jump ball, like the Buffalo situation, I don't think anyone after that Buffalo game was saying, like, Leslie Frazier screwed up or Sean McDermott screwed up with the defense. It was DeAndre Hopkins and Kyler Murray made a great play. Like, here – I just, I think, but, but don't you think, don't you think, and look, I, nobody wants to be the one that loses the game, but I imagine Greg, Greg probably wants to be the one that wins the game. But, you know, he has some of that in his personality. Now, if, if they had gone back and thrown a jump ball and, and it had been caught, wouldn't there be a million articles about how could you let a young, inexperienced secondary possibly, you know, have to go play that situation. You're 0-11. Why not go take a chance? What's the difference between 0-11 and 0-12? Typical Jets, they won't, you know, they won't take any. Maybe, but I don't know. I I, I, I wouldn't have written. I don't know. I think I just would have chalked it up to, like, they, they're not very good players right now that they have. But, like, I, I, just, I just thought leaving that kid on an island against the guy who runs a 4-2 or whatever he ran at the combine was just – 
criminal because like I, I just, just I just thought you, you didn't give you didn't put your players in the best position to win that game in my opinion. But I get what you're saying, and it does speak to Greg's personality and, and the way he calls games. Yeah, and I, I look most people wouldn't make that call, but I'm pretty sure he's made those calls in the past in that situation, and it it's probably worked. It's he's done it. I mean that that exactly. ESPN had a great stat like. No one's ever called that defense. No one's ever at rush six plus in that situation since 2006. They had the, da- the data, so like he didn't call it in that. But he's called in hail mary situations. He did. He had called cover zeros before, and he called it the series before when they were on fourth and three. But like, yeah, it's it's an interesting debate. I'm curious. The other aspect of this is you touched on it. The head coach can overrule it, um, and that is not the dynamic that is in place right now here with Adam. Adam Gase said on day one, Greg Williams is the head coach of the defense, and he kind of left him alone. I think that's a flawed system, and you know it, it worked, I guess, for Sean McVay and Wade Phillips. So people are kind of emulating that. I'm curious as a guy who you, you've been in that seat and you were a defensive guy. How did you kind of handle the offensive coordinator and how involved were you with your offensive coordinators? Yeah, I, look, I, I came from a place where the head coach is, is the head coach. And I mentioned both uh, Parcells and Belichick. They're the head coach of the whole team. It's, it's not – and and I'm, I'm not a believer in being the head coach of, of one side of the ball. I, I think that you have a responsibility to all the players on the team to make sure that, that things are be, being done in, in the way that, that you want it to be done or being done in line with the vision that you've clearly set out. And that's what I did as a head coach. I was very involved with offense. I was very involved with special teams and critical situations. I was going to have a say. We were going to practice it during the week. We were going to talk about it the night before games. There was going to be clarity. And in the moment, we were going to talk about it. And there were situations that came up where we, we would have a got-to-have-it situation, a, a critical situation, where we would practice a certain play, and then we'd go into the game and, and we'd call something different. And after the game, I, I'd talk to the offensive coordinator and say, well, well, how do we get here? And whatever the reason was, to me, that's not a good enough reason. We, we practiced this play in this situation. Our guys know what to do. And, and we've agreed that this is the best approach when you take the emotion of the moment out of it. And to suddenly change that without, without consulting me wasn't okay. You know, now that approach isn't, isn't for everybody. Some guys want to be the offensive coordinator and head coach. Some guys will want to be the defensive coordinator and the head coach. And then there's other guys who want to be the head coach of the whole team. Eric, did you know? Did you know when when you were fired? At, you know, after that that final season, two thousand eight. Did you see it coming? Obviously, you guys were right there in the thick of things, and things kind of fell apart. Um, that Black Monday. Did Did you see that meeting coming that you were getting canned? Well, no, I I didn't see it coming. We were we were nine and seven, and you know, going into the season, you know, bringing Brett far to the Jets wasn't part of the plan, and. The understanding was we were gonna we were gonna try it and and see see how it worked and we're opening um, you know on the verge of, of opening a new stadium and we're making the move to, to to Jersey so there was there was some some concessions made to, to to do what we did and then we started out and we were playing well we were coming off victories against New England and then Tennessee who was undefeated Brett got hurt we didn't obviously finish very well down the stretch but I didn't think that we played poorly enough to, to merit a, a change. But, you know, if you want to make those decisions, you got to go buy a football team. <laughs> and unfortunately, I, you know, I, I didn't own the team at that point. <laughs> and I'd say this, Eric, 
the Jets would kill for nine and seven right now. <laughs> oh, we'd throw a ticker tape parade in New York City, yeah. Virtually, <laughs> of course. Nine and seven. Eric, do you still have your house in Jersey? Because that was always one of my favorite stories of yours is you're, you're, you buy that house before the 2008 season and you didn't get to spend much time in it. Uh, yeah, you know, I still do own that house in wow. Jersey and um, been renting it out. I, I, I didn't think I was going to be heavy in real estate over the years, but um, <laughs> sometimes sometimes life, uh, life just happens that way. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place. You know, anybody who's, who's interested in it. <laughs> I remember you saying one time that, you, you know, you sometimes visited to see different rooms that you haven't visited before. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was not there very long. And even when I was there, I wasn't, you know, in the house very in often. Park. <laughs> yeah. Eric, I'll, I'll say this. There's a complaint that I've gotten from every head coach since you, and they, they blame you for this. The windowless head coach's office in Florham Park. They, they always blame you. They say, this Mangini must have done this. There's no windows to the outside from the head coach's office. No, that's, that's not true. All the coaches' offices don't have um, windows to the outside. That, when that... Right, yeah. All the coaches' offices in Florida Park, yeah, they're all in the middle. Yeah, they, but the, the head coaches always complain. That, yeah, that, look, that was, that was not, not my call. I would have done, <laughs> done things really differently with, with those offices. It was funny. We were having a meeting one time with, with the architects, and um, I had suggested something, and... and the guy said, "Well, this has to accommodate all all head coaches." <laughs> Basically, <laughs> saying, "Don't don't worry about it. You won't be here long enough for you know, <laughs> for you to have that kind of imp- imp- input on the building." It was, it was a very uh, it was a subtle but not so subtle reminder that that all of us all of us have name tags that that slide in and out of the door. <laughs> yeah, well, Eric, you started off and you guys were at Hofstra. I, I miss those days. As a guy who went to Hofstra, I got there in 2009 and you guys were gone. Um, I miss the days of the Jets training at Hofstra, but rest in peace to Hofstra football as well that we lost that year. So Hofstra is just not, not the place for football anymore, medical school and all that. But uh, Eric Mancini, catch him on FS1. Uh, we enjoyed you know taking a trip down memory lane with you. Glad you don't have any, uh, you know, any neighbors shouting at in your driveway anymore. And uh, hopefully we can talk to you again later in the season. Thanks, Eric. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. We'll talk to you soon. That says adios to episode 55, the Marvin Jones edition of Gangs All Here, our Jets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Alex Camerata for helping me out in producing the show. Show us some love on Apple Podcasts and give Gangs All Here a five-star rating and write in a nice review. We appreciate your support. For Brian Costello, I'm Jake Brown. We return to your eardrums on Monday following Jets Seahawks. Oh boy. Enjoy the game, folks, and as always, stay safe. Put a clown all over his face.